she loves Antiques Roadshow. And I'm always kidding with her. How can you watch this? Like, I feel like I'm the political equivalent of the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> but she loves that. Can you believe that base is worth that much? I mean, I can't tell you how many times we watch Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Mr. President, thank you for coming on the podcast. Glad to do it. Hello, and welcome back to With Her. I'm Max Linsky. This week on the show, my guest is William Jefferson Clinton. I talked to the president in Cleveland, Ohio. It was the day after his wife participated in the first presidential debate. It's a particular honor to talk to you this afternoon, uh, not even 24 hours after the first presidential debate. Yeah, it was a pretty great debate. I'm just, I'm going to say that. I'm not sure you can say this. I'm going to say this. Uh, Your wife kicks some ass. She did that. (laughs) What was it like watching her up there on that stage? Oh, I was so nervous. Chelsea was making fun of me. She said, Dad, you're more nervous than I am. (laughs) It's been frustrating for me to watch a campaign where she's had to go through so much to get where she is when her strongest supporters are the people who know her best, who've worked with her longest. When she came to Arkansas, some people were skeptical of her. There weren't many women lawyers then. Mm Mm-hmm. And when she left, everybody that worked with her thought she was great. So, you know, I think we're getting back to aligning the public perception with the personal experience of the people who know her. And that's what I liked most about last night. They saw the person that I know. When you see your wife, someone you've been married to for 40 years, standing up on that stage, what is it about her that you want people to know? I mean, and personally, not just policy, not exactly what she's going to do as president, but what is it about her as a person that you want people to know? That she's for real. That, you know, the fact that she is disciplined in what she says and speaks in complete sentences and paragraphs and actually believes that we have to have a policy if we have a problem or if we have a possibility does not mean she's a manufactured machine, as some of her critics have said. She's for real. Her passion is real. You can't fake spending more than 40 years obsessing about whether children and grandchildren have a better future. You can't fake that. She didn't wake up day before yesterday and decide she cared about this stuff. She decided to spend her life trying to help other people have better lives, and she'd done a darn good job of it. Something that people keep asking me since uh, I started doing this and got to know her a little bit, people keep asking me this question, which I think is is actually a, a really problematic question. I think it's a question that a man running for president wouldn't get. But the question is, why is she running? As though there's some secret motive. And before we talked today, I was thinking maybe I could ask you why you think she's running. Well, I know why she's running, because I know that it wasn't as easy and self-evident of a question as a lot of people think. She knew perfectly well what would happen to her if she ran, that she she would be subject to relentless attacks, that in the beginning, if she started off with a big lead, a lot of people would want it to disappear, so there'd be a race in the primary, a race in the general. She knew she was running in a time where the political and economic systems had been discredited in the eyes of many people for good reasons, and that she would be viewed with skepticism because she's been around doing public service a long time. She decided to run because she thought she was the best person 
first to help Americans increase their incomes, create more jobs, and create better futures. Second, to help us learn to live together with our diversity, make it a virtue, not a source of division. And third, to keep us safe in the world and give us the space we need to grow our way out of the last aftermath of the crash eight years ago and to lead the rest of the world in growing in the right direction. You know, when people can make a living and they think tomorrow's going to be better than today, that makes a lot of the political anger go away. It makes a lot of the skepticism go away. And she thought it was a job that somebody needed to do that who could take criticism, always leave the door open to working with Republicans, make it better. She thought she could make it better more than anybody else. You know, President Kennedy once said that everybody likes to be challenged to use whatever of God-given abilities they have to the maximum extent of their ability to do so. And I think to be a really good president, you got to do that. you got to understand the time in which you live. You have to understand exactly where you want to go and how you can help us on our eternal journey toward a more perfect union. In the case of today, it means higher incomes, more upward mobility, less inequality, more employment, affordable education, build on the Affordable Care Act and fix the problems with it, don't repeal it, and take a troubled world and not promise miracles, but promise to make it as safe as possible and convince people that we have to do it together because we are determined or doomed or fated to share the future together. So America should be happy that we have so much diversity. It's our greatest asset in an interdependent world. She gets that. So I predict to you that if she wins by one vote within 18 months, 65% of the people will swear in a poll that they voted for. <laughs> <laughs> so she wasn't surprised by the primary tightening. She wasn't surprised by the general tightening. She wasn't surprised by people coming at her in this process. Have you been surprised by anything? Oh, that no. She, not, not, not in the race, but have you been surprised by anything that she has done in this campaign? No, because I know her. But I think a lot of people, even people who supported her, have been surprised by the way she soldiered on in the face of all this, the attacks, the relentless attacks, seven Benghazi hearings. In the history of our American Republic, nobody's ever had to endure that. No one has ever played politics with the lives of Americans like this. But she's not surprised because she went through it once before and she's seen it. Mm -hmm. No, I haven't been surprised but I've been glad that her heart's still in it, that her passion's still there, because at our age, after all we've been through and all the blessings we've had in life, you know, most people wouldn't want to take those licks. The answer is, what you see is pretty much what you get, although there are some things about her people don't know. All right, well, now I have to ask, what are the things about her that people don't know? Her endless fascination with what I would call positive reality TV shows. <laughs> I don't know how many nights I've had to watch that home repair show. <laughs> she loves it when young families decide, you know, they're going to buy this home, that home, or the other home, and then how they're going to fix it up or how they're going to repair the home they've already got. That's, that's definitely a guilty pleasure. It's touching, really. She, she loves that. And I think they'd be surprised at how many books she reads. And she reads, she alternates between reading serious books and really good fiction that is disproportionately mysteries written by women. Like she's read every book that 
Louise Penny has written every book that Donna Leone, and she's gotten me hooked on them. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. But, you know, I think people would be surprised at, at the kind of things that she really likes. I imagine you guys is so busy. Like the idea that you're just sitting around watching like bad TV is kind of shocking to me. If she reads something that's great and she gives it to you and you read it, do you guys, do you talk about it? Yeah. You know, if I'm in a campaign uh, schedule and she's in a campaign schedule and we get to come home at night, if I've got something really on my mind, sometimes she says, no, we're not going to talk about politics. <laughs> no more politics tonight. <laughs> Nothing. Let's talk about our grandkids. Let's talk about, you know, something that's going on in our local community or something. Just anything but that. Or we can always watch one of the phone repair shows or Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> And you, uh, you, you abide by that rule? I don't have a choice. It's, it's hard sometimes because like, I'm not going to see you very much. i got to tell you this. No. I need a break. Tonight you're my husband, not my political consultant <laughs> or my campaigner-in-chief. No more of this. Do you think that possibly if uh, you guys end up in the White House— it's going to be it's going to be hard for you to do that. Like I feel like if my wife had a job that I'd had, I'd be constantly saying like, uh, "Here's how I did it." Just so you, just so you know, this is how I did it. You can do it however you want, but this is how I did it. No, I won't say that because I think this is a different time. If I think something's going wrong in the White House, I'll tell her that. But I will be very reluctant to offer any kind of opinions that could cause internal discord or anything. I'll give most of my advice to her privately unless she asked me to come to a meeting and in the meeting she says, what do you think? <laughs> so what I'm hearing you say is you, uh, if you're called on, you'll answer. Yeah, in front of other people. In front of other people. And at home, in the times when political conversations are allowed or economic conversations are allowed, I'll talk about it. But remember, presidents are people too and candidates are people too. They do need time to be who they are beyond running for office or holding office. Mm -hmm. You want people to stay as balanced as possible. That's important. So when she tells me we don't need to talk about this right now, I listen because I know she's right. Because at some time, you've got to rest your brain and your spirit. And the thing that makes her great, I believe, based on you know what first attracted me the first time I saw her and before she ever said a word to me, is this passionate, focused intensity if that passion and focus has always been there since you, since you first met her, what about her has changed? What's different about her now than 40 years ago, Yale Law School? I think she's more understanding of other people and their challenges and their frustrations. I wasn't a bit surprised she was so successful in the Senate at working with Republicans as well as Democrats. She gets that other people don't agree with her on everything, and it's okay. I've watched her grow in this. I've watched her grow in what uh, her reading of spiritual faith-based books often refers to as the discipline of gratitude. And no matter what happens, no matter what people say about you, no matter how bad things are, no matter if you make your own mistakes, to wake up every day and try to force yourself to remember every day all the things you have to be grateful for. And that if you have the discipline of gratitude for the things you have that gives you more strength to work for better outcomes for other people. How did that change happen for her? How do you do that work? I think, you know, in Hemingway's immortal words, in some way or another, life breaks everyone. 
And afterward, many are strong at the broken places. And I think that she has literally spent a lifetime dealing with not only her joys and her blessings, but also heartbreaks and disappointment, sometimes unfair treatment. She is more reticent than some people are in this highly revelatory culture we seem to live in to discuss things that she thinks are better kept within the family or a close circle of friends. But I've watched her. She's just grown into it. And Mandela told me once that he developed the ability and the capacity to forgive his oppressors only after more than 11 years of constant abuse. Here he was, a trained lawyer, a highly articulate, interesting man. His job in prison was to break rocks. He was physically and emotionally abused. His marriage ultimately came undone. He never got to see his kids grow up. One thing after another, and he said, finally I realized that there are only two things that could not be taken from me, including my life. My life could be taken from me. The only things that couldn't be taken from me are my mind and my heart. And I decided not to give them away. And sooner or later, everybody either makes that decision or not. That is, you decide to give other people the power of taking your mind and your heart when they pour poison into the atmosphere of politics or when adversity occurs or disappointment occurs or you keep a hold of your mind and heart. She made the right decision. Yes, it happened gradually over time, as it does for most people. Growing up is a lifetime project. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would um, imagine for a second that I am not just an undecided voter, but an unengaged voter. What would you tell me that would get me to the polls on November 8th? I would say, first of all, at your age, barring some terrible misfortune, you have more tomorrows than yesterdays. You have more at stake in this election, therefore, than older people do. We live in a time of tumult and change. Therefore, this is the change election. And our country is capable of producing more jobs, higher income, lower inequality, more upward mobility. Our country is capable of all these strengths in this new interdependent world because we have the youngest, most diverse workforce in America. But we have to learn to live together across religious, political, racial, and cultural lines that have bedeviled people from the dawn of time and still do today. As a young person, you're probably less bothered by that than other people, but you have to realize that this is a big deal. So if you want to live a more prosperous future and you want to live in a more inclusive society, where voting rights are expanded, not restricted, and civil rights are protected, not undermined, and women are treated equally with men in the workplace and in society, and most important of all, that children have a better future, you have to vote in the election. Because the decision not to vote is a vote. If something happens you don't like after this election, it's as much your fault as it is the people who voted for it. And we live in a world Yes, it's got dangers, but it's full of limitless possibilities. You ought to vote for possibilities, not problems. And if you don't, then you're saying you don't think democracy is the best form of government. And there are a lot of people all over the world today who agree with that. They think this democracy is a lot of trouble. Arguing with people is a lot of trouble. Showing up for votes, particularly at midterm, is a lot of trouble. And besides that, 
I'm always reading or looking at television and hearing how bad people are and how bad things are. This is a lot of trouble. So I think I'll just bag it. What you're bagging is a big piece of your future and a big piece of the future of the next generation after you. You got to vote. And if there were no hope of a better future, I can understand it. But we are a blessed country in a world that is full of both peril and promise. So it, the outcome can come out either way. If you know that, how in the wide world could you be due to, too disillusioned to register and vote? All right, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. I have one more question for you, and then I'll let you go. I want to ask you about optimism. How do you stay optimistic in a world that can be this cynical? And how have you and your wife stayed as optimistic as you need to be to run for president? First, gratitude. Count your blessings every day. Look at our blessings. We've been together for 40 years plus through thick and thin. We have a daughter we're proud of and we adore. We're fortunate to have a son-in-law who's a world-class human being and two beautiful grandchildren and family and close friends we love. We got a lot to be grateful for. Second, think about the people who don't have what you do and try to make something good happen. The act of trying makes you more optimistic. You literally have the capacity to rewire your brain and to affect your emotions. Pessimism basically becomes a convenient excuse for doing nothing. And if you get caught trying, you'll be happier than if you just sit on the sidelines and let it happen. It's the only position that makes sense. Is it half empty or half full? Truth is, it's both. By definition, if it's half filled, it's half empty and half full. Do you see the half full or do you see the half empty? You think, drain that sucker, it's all bad. Are you going to fill it up? I mean, it's a decision. Optimism is a decision. It's a habit of mind. Do you believe people are basically good or basically bad? I think they're basically good, and I think they want to be better. There are a few people in life who really are gleefully, darkly happy, hurting other people, hogging all the money, hogging all the power, hogging all of this, that, and the other thing. They still wind up disappointed. The happiest people are those that work for the common good. And I've seen it over and over again. I've lived long enough to know. Today, as we do this, it appears that uh, Shimon Peres is on his deathbed in Israel. He has been my friend for 25 years. He lived into his 90s. A lot of people said he was an idealistic dreamer. He devoted his life to painting a picture of a better future so people could go on, go on through bus bombings, school bombings, endless conflict. And his life was full of grace and goodness as a consequence of it. And everybody, even his opponents, were blessed. His longest opponent was probably Ariel Sharon, who's also sadly passed away. They spent his 80th birthday sitting together with me at a great show in Israel. And Ariel Sharon, by the time a stroke took him, had become an advocate for peace and reconciliation. So Shimon Peres, people were always skeptical that anyone could be so hopeful. But history, I think, has proved him right, even when the outcome was not one he agreed with. He lived to be over 90 because he was a happy warrior, because he chose to think of how things could be in a positive way, not how bad they are today. 
It's a choice we all make. I recommend the choice. Mr. President, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Just a few hours after we taped this, Shimon Perez died, and President Clinton traveled to Israel to honor him. Thanks for listening to With Her, Hillary Clinton's official campaign podcast. I'm Max Linsky. All of our episodes are available on hillaryclinton.com slash podcast or iTunes or anywhere else you are listening to podcasts. We'll be back soon with a new episode. But before we go, after uh, I thanked President Clinton for taking some time, I left the recorder on and he had one more story to tell about a very old rock. When I was president, uh, we celebrated the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of the moonwalk in 1969, in 1999. So NASA brought me a rock taken off the moon by Neil Armstrong in a vacuum-packed container. It was carbon dated at 3.6 billion years old. So, and I was a big supporter of the space program. You know, they wanted we did. I said, let me ask you something. Can I just borrow that till I leave office? <laughs> and they said, yes. You know when you see the president meeting with a foreign leader in the Oval Office and there's two couches and then the two chairs and there's always a table in the middle? I put the moon rock on the table. And for the rest of my time in the Oval Office, whenever people came in, like Republicans and Democrats or people from different countries, and they got in a fight and they were repeating their well-worn positions, I'd say, wait a minute, guys. You see that rock there? It's 3.6 billion years old. Now we are all just passing through. And we don't have enough time to do this. Now let's just settle down and figure out how we can make something good happen. It almost always worked. It had a very calming effect on people. I can imagine. To look at something that spanned so many years long before human beings ever existed on the planet. I mean, think about that. Our actual species rose up on the East African savanna sometime around 200,000 years ago, which means that for 3.54 billion years, there was nobody even around like us, right? You say, ooh, I'm little, so I better be big because I have this limited little window where I get to be a human being. Hillary thinks about stuff like that. She read all this, these books about archaeological digs. She read an archaeology periodical cover to cover. People clawing around, you know, trying to figure out the history of this, that, or the other place. She'd come in and say, look at this. Look at these artifacts. Look what people were doing so long ago. I got to ask you, did, did you give back the rock? Sure I did. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the American people. And somebody else can make good use of it. How many people, there aren't very many people that have ever seen up close something that's over three billion years old. It didn't make me feel small. It rooted me in the vast expanse of time. And I realized what was small was the allocation of my life on earth, even if I lived to be 100. And I'd better not waste a day. One thing I can tell you, if she gets to be president, she won't waste a day. <laughs>